Welcome back to Bitchy History, the irreverent history podcast that would like you to know that intersectionality should have been part of feminism from the very beginning, because the subjugation of women and the subjugation of every other oppressed minority has been part of the same system the whole damn time. Welcome to episode two of the second season of Bitchy History. As I explained in the opening episode of the season, the show is going through a little bit of a transition period as it finds its space in the field of history podcasts. The American History 101 episodes that I did last season are giving way to a slightly more flexible way to cover history from the angles that I most love, rather than having a simple chronological coverage of American history. What that means is that the show is going to be jumping around a lot more on the timeline and not focusing necessarily on the historical figures whose names you already recognize. One of the things I want to focus on, which fits in rather nicely with the name of the podcast, is the centering of women in the history of America and history generally. When I was asked to teach my first women's history class at the university, I was pretty excited to do it, but didn't realize that it would become my new obsession. But it's an obsession well worth discussing. And if you wonder what this has to do with today's episode, let me tell you. If you caught the end of the last episode, I said that I was going to be talking about the American Civil War today, and your mind probably went to the Gettysburg Address, or the secession of the states, or the caning of Charles Sumner, if you're particularly well-versed in the details of the causes of the Civil War. If that's what you showed up for, I'm really sorry. We're going to be talking about the patriarchy and how that impacted the rhetoric of the Civil War. Today we'll be looking at the lives of women in the South and the very paternalistic social order that ruled their lives, and how that was part and parcel of the system of chattel slavery that the war was fought to preserve. But before we go into that, let's clarify one very important thing. The war was about slavery, point blank. It wasn't about states' rights, except in as much as it was about the Confederate states believing that they had the right to own people. That's it. That's the cause. There are other secondary issues, of course, but almost every single one of those secondary causes traces back to one root. Slavery. This should sound obvious, but if you follow me on TikTok, you'll know just how much drama this one seemingly common sense statement can cause. The reaction from Southerners on TikTok when I say that the war was about slavery is something along the lines of... So far, I have avoided being burnt at the stake, but there's always next time, I guess. Despite claims to the contrary, the slave system was not dying out on its own, and it was not incompatible with economic success in the 19th century. Slave prices had tripled from 1800 to 1860, and they were a very valuable commodity. In addition, the number needed by planters increased by an average of about 27% every decade. If you want more information on that, I've got an entire playlist on the Civil War and the Lost Cause myth on my TikTok account, and I'm hoping to eventually have on a couple of experts on the history of the Civil War and the Lost Cause uh, here on the show to discuss it in more depth. But for today, let's talk about the social order of the antebellum South. We'll start with the obvious question. What the hell is paternalism? Now, for those of you that have studied Latin, I've forgotten around 99% of what I learned in high school, and I didn't learn that much to begin with, to be honest. You'll probably have a basic idea. Pater is the Latin word for father. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy defines paternalism as the interference of a state or an individual with another person against their will and defended or motivated by a claim that the person interfered with will be better off or protected from harm. 
Paternalism is pretty much a necessity when raising a child. After all, a child doesn't really have logic that you can appeal to, and you have to make rules. Don't play in the street, don't touch the stove, don't stick forks in light sockets. And when children don't follow those rules, even if they don't get hurt doing the thing that the parent told them not to do, parents punish their children for their own good. However, that style of parenting should give way to more appeals to logic, discussions about what's right and wrong, and what's good for you and bad for you, ultimately allowing children to make their own decisions as they grow older. A paternalistic approach to parenting doesn't work the same way for a 16-year-old as it would for a 6-year-old, and you definitely wouldn't want to try the same thing with a 26-year-old. But outside the parent-child bond, paternalism does become a problem, especially if it's being enforced by the government or a social order in a way that takes away a person's bodily autonomy. Because the government, your father, your husband, or your social circle know better and have to keep you or society as a whole from what those in charge deem is harmful behavior. Of course, some paternalistic laws, like requiring seatbelts in cars, restrict a person's autonomy very lightly in exchange for increased safety for them and everyone around them. Others, like the war on drugs or abortion bans, cause far more harm than good on the individual and a societal level. But before we get too hung up in the philosophical issues, which really isn't my area, let's shift back to talking about how this applied to the social order of the southern states. So what was paternalism in the context of the South? Paternalism was intrinsically a part of the social system of the South. It was involved in establishing the entire social order, from the hierarchy of class to the hierarchy of race, slavery, and gender. The social hierarchy of the South was incredibly stratified. It placed the plantation owner and his wife over the yeoman farmer and his wife. Below them was the poor whites who owned no land and their landless wives. All of these, no matter their economic status, were above freed blacks, slaves, and children. And climbing this social hierarchy was the American dream for most Southerners. Much like the idiots who think that maybe one day they too can be millionaires if they just follow the advice of Dave Ramsey, the dream of poor whites and yeoman farmers was to rise to the level of the plantation owner. Instead of dreaming about gold toilets and a membership at Mar-a-Lago, they dreamed of possessing slaves. And when I say paternalism is related to the practice of slavery in the South, I want to clarify what I mean. Because slavery was not actually paternalistic. Paternalism involves seeing someone as a child and believing that you're making these rules for their betterment or to protect them from harm, which is patently not what was occurring with slavery. Slavery was for the benefit of the enslaver, not the enslaved. So when it comes to the practice of slavery, paternalism is a social order that was used to justify slavery. It's the way slave owners would justify it to others, how they would justify it to themselves, how people still justify it today. You've heard it. The people who say, well, of course slavery was bad, but they learned useful skills. Or, of course slavery was wrong, but being enslaved allowed them to become civilized Christians, so it's not all bad. The other reason that paternalism was only an excuse for the slave owner is that for someone to be paternal to someone, they have to see them as a sentient being, rather than a commodity or a tool to be sold, traded, and used for the owner's benefit. And anyone who knows much of anything about the practice of chattel slavery in the South knows that slave owners didn't really feel much compunction to treat their property as human. During the antebellum period, white men kept the social hierarchy in place. For the social hierarchy to work, white men needed their dependents to be subordinate to them. Southern white men gained power through paternalism. White men in the South, whether poor or rich, occupied a higher level of the social hierarchy in a paternalistic system. Of course, a wealthy plantation owner was higher than a human farmer, 
But both held a higher position than the women in their household, which is how paternalism benefited even the non-slave owners in the South. It was a system which kept even the poorest white man at a better position in society than women or the enslaved. It elevated them above every dependent, including the fully grown adult women in their sphere of power. The family unit of the antebellum South functioned in a very similar way to what I described way back in episode 6 when I said that Thomas Hobbes viewed the family unit as functioning as a little monarchy. Judge Glover of South Carolina put it this way in 1858, The obligation imposed on the husband to provide for their wants and protection makes it necessary that he should exercise a power of control over all members of his household. For that reason, the law, looking to the peace and happiness of families in the best interest of society, places the husband and father at the head of the household. And in fact, it went further than that. In Stephanie McCurry's book, Masters of Small Worlds, she further quotes this from Judge Glover when he states that a wife's legal existence is suspended, and because of this, a man was considered to have possession or custody of his wife, and as such, she could not even have legal custody over her own children, because that would cause and I quote, a divided empire in the government of the family. The father and husband was the monarch, the wife, the matrimonial slave. In 1854, an anonymous submission to the Southern Quarterly Review was titled Marriage and Divorce and stated that marriage was a contract that was not entered into with the terms of equality, that men were unquestionably in charge and that a woman carries into the union a feebleness that solicits protection and in marriage rarely learns to stand alone. But far more telling in the context of how paternalism directed towards women is part and parcel of defending slavery is this author's assertion that divorce was a supplication to the pestilent ideas of natural rights and individual liberty. Stephanie McCurry rightly states that by 1854, the words in this letter would have immediately told the readers what was really at stake if women were allowed to have some form of natural rights or individual liberty in marriage. It would cause the, quote, whole framework of the social temple to fall to pieces, and it would call everything else into question, the legitimacy of all domestic dependencies, which would have given weight to the abolitionist causes all across America. This, my dear listeners, is why intersectionality is so important. It's never been just about subjugating white women. For many, that was just a means to an end. If marriage dictated a woman's subordination to a man, then a man's dominance over a slave was also obviously a natural concept. The pro-slavery movement used gender to legitimize slavery by emphasizing women's natural subordinate state. In an 1856 issue of DeBow's Review, the Honorable Robert Toombs, who would later become the Secretary of State for the Confederacy, wrote that the subordination of the African is the normal, necessary, and proper condition. The white is the superior race and the black the inferior. This sovereignty of right is justice, commonly called national justice, read by the light and revelations of nature's God. We can see this same rhetoric used in the Southern Quarterly Review in 1852 in reference to the enfranchisement of women. Women's conditions certainly admit of improvement. Here, as in all other improvements, the good must be brought about by working with, not against, nature's laws. Everything counter to nature is abhorrent to nature, and the mental aberrations of women, which we are now discussing, excite at once pity and disgust, like those revolting physical deformities which the eye turns from with involuntary loathing. We are not undervaluers of women, rather we profess ourselves to be her advocate. Each can labor, each can strive, lovingly and earnestly, in her own sphere. Nature's signposts are within thee, and it were well for thee to learn and read them. 
And then there comes my favorite part of this article, where it all comes together and the author of this particular rant draws the connection for us between women's emancipation and slavery when he writes, but the poison is spreading and truly except that the fashion of the thing is a little newer, it is but a piece with black emancipation. I love it when the primary source just draws all of the conclusions for me, honestly. And then, like so many men's rights activists since him, the author waxes poetic for a bit on how women are inferior because he's bigger and stronger and he could definitely beat up a woman. If beings are created to different ends, it is impossible to consider them in the point of equality or inequality, except insofar as their differences are of a kind to still allow them to be cast in the same category. As, for instance, the man as animal is superior to the beast, the white man is, for the same reason, superior to the black. The woman, classed as man, must also be inferior, if only because she is inferior in corporeal strength. A female must necessarily be inferior to a male, so long as the latter has the power to knock her down. I have to say, it's always so telling how obsessed they are with hitting women. Now, I could go on at length quoting from this particular article. It's about 20 pages long, single-spaced, but I think you get the picture. The natural order of subservience was not just something that applied to women or to slaves. It applied to both of them. Pro-slavery advocates argued that slavery was natural. To the pro-slavery South, abolitionism was intrinsically linked to the movement for women's rights and suffrage as well. The slave-owning wealthy cast abolition as an attack on the very social order that made all men, even the yeoman farmer with no skin in the game of slavery, the master of his own home. Even men who were lower class and not slave owners benefited economically from the practice of slavery and socially from the practice of paternalism. Every white man in the South had inherent power due to his race and gender. No matter how poor you were, you were always the social better of someone else if you were white and male. So pull that particular tidbit out the next time a dude says, most people didn't even own slaves, so clearly the war couldn't have been about slavery. The South's social order relied on the idea that subordination of certain genders and races was natural and correct. That was the peculiar institution of the South, the idea that it was normal and natural for some people to be owned and controlled by others. However, it would be irresponsible of me to leave out how paternalism also benefited white women in the antebellum South, especially if they were wealthy. Wealthy white women were the mothers and mistresses of their family. They oversaw the work of the slaves in the domestic household, and while their husbands ultimately did have the final say in things, women did rule the domestic sphere as something of a steward. Sure, the king could come in and take over, but while the king is away, the steward is in charge. Paternalism and the practice of slavery benefited them in some ways, too, which meant that they had just as much interest in maintaining and defending the practice as their husbands did in most cases, even if paternalism restricted their autonomy in exchange for those benefits. To be an elite wealthy white woman in the South was to follow some very strict gender roles. Female advice books like Letters on a Female Character by Virginia Randolph Carey, published in 1828, praised the ideals of the domestic sphere. Women, according to Carey, should depend on male protection. Citing scripture, Carey states that woman was formed from man and therefore subservient to his authority. Similar to the anonymous 1854 letter I mentioned earlier, Carey believed that women stepping outside the traditional gender roles would result in national misery. Her proof? Apparently, independent women getting outside their proper place in society caused the French Revolution and the desolation of their country. Which is a fun theory. 
No idea what facts she was basing it on, but it's a fun theory. Staying in your proper place in society was also meant to protect women. A proper young woman was far, far, far too delicate and pure to survive without a man to save them from all the horrible things in society. Think of all those fainting young women in Victorian novels, so demure and dainty that even the slightest upset could have them tumbling to the ground in a swoon. Were they actually fainting or pretending to establish their daintiness and delicacy to men? That's anyone's guess, really. But this whole need to protect women that was intrinsic to the paternalistic Southern social order would come to play a very large part in Southern propaganda about the Civil War. The Confederacy found that the perfect narrative in which to frame the war, and that was that it was an attack on the Southern way of life, not just slavery. Slavery was a major part of the Southern way of life, but if slavery ended, it might also bring destruction to the Southern family. Confederate propaganda promoted the war as a means to protect white women and the rights of men as the masters in their own homes. Prior to the start of the war, even the propaganda for secession played on the fears of invasion of a man's home and the violation of his rights and the pollution of white women. A Richmond soldier stated his purpose for fighting was for the protection of the fair daughters of my own native state from Yankee outrage and atrocity. Outrage being, of course, the term used to refer to rape during this period. Captain William Fisher Plain, a Confederate soldier, wrote in one letter to his wife in 1861 that he viewed the war as glorious to die for one's country and in defense of innocent girls and women from the fangs of the lecherous northern hirelings, who from accounts here stated are indeed engaged in this for beauty and booty. Heartrending are some of the stories. Tis enough to arouse the feelings of Southern manhood and call to arms every son of the South. Yes, I heard it. I heard it too. Beauty and booty. <sighs> Excuse me while I go laugh for a second. I shouldn't be laughing. It's horrible, but I, I gotta go laugh. Okay, so now we're back. Yeah. So the Richmond Whig in 1863 urged every newspaper in the South to write about the violence of the Union Army, the shrieks of violated women, and the cries of orphaned children. Union soldiers were accused of ravishing women regularly. The Augusta Register in 1864 wrote that we are informed that the incarnate devils ravish some of the nicest ladies of the town. Now, of course, I'm not here to say that no woman was ever raped during the Civil War. Unfortunately, one of the truths of war has long been that women are victimized violently, often in the context of sexual assault. There is more than enough evidence to show that sexual assault was pretty commonplace during the Civil War. In fact, it was such an issue that the Lieber Code of 1863 was codified, putting in place rules for court-martial trials of soldiers accused of rape or sexual assault, regardless of the victim's race. Not that this made it easy for the victims to press charges. However, throughout the war, around 400 to 450 men were prosecuted for sexual violence on the Union side of the war. Most Confederate records didn't survive the war, but given the propensity for rape of enslaved women that existed when the South wasn't at war, it's ridiculous to think that they weren't getting up to the exact kind of violence against women that seems to always come with war. However, as one might expect, the number of victims who were black women seems to be much higher than the number of white women victimized. But the sexual assault of black women in the South would not be useful for recruitment or propaganda, so they focused on using the fear of the violation of chastity of white women as a tool to recruit soldiers in the South. 
This rhetoric united both rich and poor white men for the cause because all white men had the duty to protect under the paternalistic system of the Southern society. Historian Leanne Weitz, in her book, The Civil War as a Crisis in Gender, wrote that slaveholders and non-slaveholders alike in their defense of the Confederacy was their defense of a common social construction of manhood as largely autonomous and self-directing household heads. The fight was framed as being about protecting the social order, men as heads of household with women and slaves subordinate to them. A neat trick to make even the men with no direct financial benefit from slavery see the battle as one that would benefit them socially to fight. And lest you think that this kind of rhetoric faded out after the war and paternalism became a thing of the past, let me correct you. This same rhetoric of women needing to be protected from the violent black man became only more pronounced after the war. But those of you that know even the most scant history of lynching in the South, or even just one case of lynching, that of Emmett Till, would already know that. Crystal Feimster, a feminist scholar in the Department of African American Studies at Yale University, had this to say in an interview with the Women's Media Center in 2013. In the post-war years, Southern white men articulated a political discourse that defined rape as a crime committed by black men against white women. In constructing the image of the black rapist, Southern white men sought to challenge black men's rights as citizens while simultaneously expanding their sexual power over black and white women. A quick glance at Chapter 2 of Ida B. Wells' The Red Record would find that accusations of sexual assault were one of the most common crimes that African-American men were lynched for in the Reconstruction era. In Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases, Wells quotes from a newspaper on May 21, 1892, where they write, Eight Negroes lynched since last issue of the Free Speech. Five on the same old racket. The new alarm about raping white women. In the book, Wells details numerous accounts of false accusations that were eventually recanted, but usually not until the damage was done, much like the case of Emmett Till. The toxic paternalistic idea that women must be protected by men had a half-life that caused continued racial violence throughout the Reconstruction era well into the era of Jim Crow in the South. And having grown up in the South, I can tell you that not much has changed in that regard, really. And on to our final point for the show today. Remember a bit earlier in the show when I read from that putrid bit of garbage opposing women's enfranchisement in 1852? The one that clearly linked abolitionism to the cause of women's suffrage? Yeah, that little connection didn't go away after the war either. Now, it's certain that many suffragists had some problematic issues with race, to say the least, but unfortunately that was a trait that they shared with the anti-suffrage movement as well. For instance, one particular postcard put out by the Georgia Association Opposed to Women's Suffrage in 1915, which, well, I'll just read the relevant part to you. Vote against women's suffrage, it says across the top, because universal suffrage wipes out the disenfranchisement of the Negro by state law, because of the danger to farmers' families if Negro men vote in addition to two million Negro women, because white supremacy must be maintained. Included with this postcard was an article entitled The Places Assigned to Men and Women, in which former President Grover Cleveland expounded on, you guessed it, the natural place of men and women, where men make all the decisions and protect women from the outside world. Oh, he tries to make it sound better than some of the antebellum rhetoric I shared with you earlier, but he makes it very clear that the characteristics of women make them unsuitable to have the vote. 
that women have too much sentiment to be trusted to make clear-headed decisions, and that women's role in life is to give firm rooting and sure growth to man's best efforts. Basically, according to Cleveland and other anti-suffragists, giving women the right to vote would be a disaster of biblical proportions. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Yes. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. So as I said during this episode's intro, intersectionality should have been a part of the feminist movement from the very start. Because it's never just one or the other. The damn system is set up to oppress anyone who isn't a straight white male, and somehow our ancestors kept missing the connection. And some of us keep missing the connection even today, even though we should be able to see it pretty clearly. We all need to do better. Especially white women, because people who want to oppress others are hilariously a lot less discriminatory than we think. They'll take the power from anyone. Thank you all so much for tuning in to listen to me bitch about history today. Today's episode was a hell of a project, even though it was based on part of a lecture that I give in my women's history class. We dealt with a lot of primary and secondary source material in this episode today, and I'm working harder at being more transparent with my research materials and process because that's what good historians do. I'm not here to gatekeep, despite the name of the subscriber-only podcast being the Gaslight Gatekeep Girl Boss Sessions. That's just an inside joke. Uh, I'm not here to say, just trust me, bro, either, so I'm instituting something new for the podcast and for my TikTok. There's now a Substack newsletter that you can sign up to to receive in your inbox. Whenever I put out a podcast or a research-heavy TikTok, I'll endeavor to make a post including links to the sources I used in my research and sometimes some additional recommended reading that I think is nice. You can find the Substack at bitchyhistory.substack.com, and I'll also post a link on bitchyhistory.com as well. It's a completely free newsletter, and anytime I post something to it, pop, it hits your inbox. I mean, you guys probably know how Substack works by this point, but I thought I'd remind you. Please feel free to subscribe, and remember, if you want access to the subscriber-only podcast or any of the other perks available on my Patreon, you can find a link to it on the Bitchy History website. Have a great week, and I'll see you back here next Monday.